Welcome to this episode of Reading Between the Wines. I'm your hostess, Winona Glass, and I am joined with the Somme of the South, Miss Keegan Moore. Howdy! And today we are going to discuss The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab, a novel that came out in 2020. And whew, this novel was one of the longest that we read. (laughs) Quite some time we span as well. Yes, we span exactly 300 years, at least as far as kind of where the book nebulously ends. But from 1714 to 2014, uh, we go through all the revolutions, all the world wars. (laughs) I mean, it's an eventful time in world history from 1714 to 2014. Indeed. So the book opens, and we learn about Addie LaRue, Adeline LaRue, and she is 23 years old in 1714, and her parents decide to marry her off. I mean, she's old. She's very old for 1714 standards, like very old maid, but she's gorgeous. She's beautiful, curly red hair, like beautiful skin, and so she's very distraught at the fact that she's going to be married off uh, to someone that she doesn't really even care for, so she sprints out of her wedding as her dad and her as her dad is waiting to like walk her down the aisle and she goes into the woods and she is working very hard to try to summon the spirits someone that will make a deal with her to help her get out of the situation and what she doesn't realize is while she is beating the ground trying to summon these spirits that it gets dark And she has a mentor that she's had for several years, uh, Estelle, and Estelle always says that you never make a deal with the spirits that come out after dark. Well, when Addie is so engrossed in her own mournfulness, she doesn't realize that it's gotten dark outside. Mm. And so when someone appears and says, I mean, I'll make a deal with you. I'll make a deal that for your soul, no one will ever know that you existed. So she... Decides to do it, right? She sees the out, and she thinks, I mean, how bad can this be, right? And so, but the caveat there that we have to enforce is that it's as long as you are willing, right? you can keep your soul as long as you are willing, and then when you're done with it, it's mine. That's what the spirit makes the deal with. She makes the deal, and immediately she is erased from history, so she cannot leave a mark. She has no fingerprints. She can't take a picture of her, which in 1714, not an issue. (laughs) But as you move forward into life uh, in the 20th century, that becomes more of an issue. And she can't, like, no one. She goes to her parents' house. They have no idea who she is. She goes to Estelle's house to say, Estelle, I don't know what I've done. And Estelle has absolutely no idea who she is. Now, I, I feel like that would be really hard to reconcile, especially, like, your parents not knowing who you are, like yeah. you're a stranger. And so she flounders a lot because like even she would go back and like try to see her best friend and she would try to position herself. She got really good at lying or like crafting a story because the conditions of her spell or of her deal are that as soon as someone either like walks through a door, falls asleep, averts their eyes, their attention is drawn away from her, they don't remember who she is. So while she's like maintaining eye contact or actively talking to them, they remember who she is. But like if you're at dinner with her and you get up to go to the bathroom, 
They don't even (laughs) remember that you were ever there. Or someone will take her order at a restaurant and then forget she was sitting at the table. So, again, like, it's just she doesn't exist. And so that seems like a very hard life to have. So there's, like, a wine line about lying. Okay. She will learn in time that she can lie, and the words flow like wine, easily poured, easily swallowed. I would imagine that she drinks a lot of wine uh, over 300 years, and she even spills wine, and uh, they talk about it, and one of the vignettes in this book is that she actually spills wine on the couch, but she doesn't— the cream sofa. But she doesn't worry, because she's like, because a stain— I can't leave a mark. —would mean that I was here. So she, like, watches it evaporate off of couches, a cream-colored couch, which— I, Wouldn't that be nice? I was going to say, that's not a bad thing in my book to watch a stain just evaporate. Um, but I understand her her quandary and her dilemma here. And so this book, again, takes place like I feel like we went three quarters of the way through the book before we actually got to the story. Like the first part was her just understanding what her curse was and right. understanding her relationship with the the spirit of the night, which we learn she names him Luke, which he's essentially the devil, but they never really call him that. She calls him Luke, and she names him Luke because that was the person she was in love with. And she knew that she could never have that person. She knew that she could never see that person again. So she figured naming him something that she now despised, some person that she now despised, a spirit, that that is um, the best way to honor that the ending of that relationship. He's kind of like, I don't know. I I feel like their relationship is very tumultuous in the beginning because I feel like he's asking her almost every day, like, you ready to give up? You ready to give up? And then she goes for a really long time. She was kind of adamant that she was not going to give up. Like almost in spite of him, she was going to dig her heels in and try to live whatever this life was and make a mark, even though she knew that that was not part of the conditions of what she could do. So she travels through history, and it's this weird dichotomy between the two of them, between Luke and Addie, because he protects her in a lot of situations, like during the French Revolution, when he like, Like, you don't need to be here right now. Right. Like, let me take care of you. And then he like takes her to Italy, and then he takes her to America. And so he kind of like gets her out of these situations, because I don't think he wants her to die on her own accord. He wants to be the one that she relents to as opposed to like these French revolutionary guys taking her life. So he takes her to all these different things. But I also feel like there's some sort of affection, but I'm almost like he's humored by her. Luke is humored by her. Addie hates him. Like she has no, it's a very one-sided relationship. And he like tricked her from the beginning. Correct. And so she definitely does not want anything that he is offering her, but he does take care of her and he does kind of take her out of some intense situations. But towards the end, he also is kind of a jerk to her, you know, like he makes her disappear for seven days when time is of the essence at towards the end of the book. So it's, it's kind of like he looks for opportunities to not, only give her things, but also for things he can take away, even though she has nothing left. Because he gave her a place to live in New Orleans. You know, she knew that she could never accumulate things. And but then she had a home and she had a home for a while until he got mad at her. And then it burned to the ground. Then he, you know, it just miraculously burned to the ground. But she had, again, over 300 years, she experiences a ton of different 
world historic events. But then we're going to move to present day, and she meets Henry. And Henry, again, she can't make a memory. She can't leave a mark. But she goes into Henry's bookstore kind of on happenstance, and she steals a book, um, and it's in Greek, ironically. She's not really paying attention when she takes one. She speaks multiple languages because she's lived longer than anyone. And Henry says, like, hey, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, well, I'm just going to leave. Like, she just kind of walks out the door because traditionally throughout her life— once she she's out of eye line, then they forget about her. The problem is, is he actually runs after her outside of the bookstore onto the street and is like, hey. Excuse me, ma'am. Why are you <laughs> taking this book? And she's like, wait, you remember me? You remember me? Like, you still see me? And he's like, yeah, I see you stealing a $3 book from me. <laughs> In Greek. In Greek. I'm sure that that is a very... Um, sought after title at the last word, the Henry's bookshop. But then the next day she goes back because she's so like, she can't fathom the fact that Henry can remember her and that Henry can recall that she even stole a book. So she goes back the next day because she, again, as she's like drawn to this situation mm-hmm. and he's like, Hey, so you're like returning to the scene of the crime. <laughs> and she's like, seriously, dude, you can remember me. And he's like, yeah, I remember you trying to steal a book from me yesterday. She's like, please, let's go to coffee. <laughs> like, I, I need to spend more time with you because you're the first person in 300 years to know me for longer than an evening. <laughs> exactly. And so they go to they go to coffee together. They, She can only afford a cup for him. Yes. And then he feels horrible because... Yeah. I don't want to drink coffee in front of you. Right. So then he goes and buys her a cup of coffee, which was such a sweet gesture. And they kind of, that's the start of their relationship. And here she thinks that Luke has made a mistake and she thinks that she's found some sort of loophole because they go on a date and their date lasts until the next day. But Henry falls asleep and wakes up and still remembers who she is, which again has not happened to her in 300 years that someone has remembered her for 24 hours straight. (laughs) And it becomes evident that Henry has also made a deal with Luke. He made a deal with Luke because he felt like he was never enough. His fiance, well, I guess it wasn't his fiance. He proposed. Tried to be fiance. He proposed to a young woman and she basically said the, it's not you, it's me. But really, it's you, and you're just not quite enough for me. But I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is about you, but you're just not enough. He's heartbroken and devastated and goes into a depression, and Luke shows up, and he kind of makes a deal with the devil, and he's like, I just want to be enough. So Luke grants him that, but it comes at a cost. For a year. For one year, he will be enough to every person that he meets. Mm. Wanted. Yes, desired, (laughs) sought after. But Henry quickly learns it's not real. Like, he can tell as soon as he's talking to you. Like, he goes on a date, and the woman's like, you're just so— because he's like, so what is it about me that you like? And she's like, you're just so driven just and everything. motivated. <laughs> and you're just so, like, ambitious. And he's like, none no, of those words I'm describe not. me. <laughs> none of them. But 
that's what you see because that's what you want from me. You want that from me to for me to be enough. It's really interesting because the only thing that Addie wants from him is to be remembered. Mm-hmm. There is no like she doesn't want him to be and she doesn't want to try to change him. She doesn't want him to be ambitious. She doesn't she just wants to be remembered. Right. And he remembers her and she's like I found a loophole. It's interesting that the next day he shows up and they talk about or the next day he has this watch that miraculously appears. And the watch says on the back of it, you know, live your life or some cliched term like <laughs> that. And the watch always appears on his wrist, even though he takes it off every night. Like it always just kind of finds its way to his wrist the same way that her wooden ring always finds its way to her pocket. As many times as she has like chucked it, (laughs) destroyed it, like dropped it off of the Empire State Building, tried to destroy this ring. It always finds its way back to her pocket. And it seems to be the only possession that she can keep because it's the way that if she puts it on, it summons Luke to her side. And so it is the kind of the commitment of the two of them to be together, or I guess it's his commitment to be there for her whenever she's ready to surrender her soul. But Addie thinks that she's found some sort of loophole in this, and she's found some sort of way that um, she can get one over on Luke. We find out that that might not actually be the case, that Luke may have set this up and given her Henry as a gift. Yeah, he claims it as a gift to her. It was all a game. Which, again, just like toys with her emotions because here she's finally found someone who can do the one thing that she wished for and she can't enjoy it for very long because in her life that's never ending, his is very limited. Again, it goes back to Luke has given her some amazing experiences over time. I know there was one experience that really stuck out to you that happened in 1872. When Luke takes her to go see Wagner and they go to the opera and it's the first night he doesn't ask for her soul. But I just got such goosebumps. I listened to the music during that scene while I was reading it and it was very moving. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he also takes her... And makes her watch him take Beethoven's soul mm-hmm. in like 1827. Which was gut-wrenching as well. I mean, to because he's just begging for more time because yeah. he has more to write and never gets to. But one of those like chilling Luke quotes was like, don't mistake any of this for kindness. I simply want to be the one that breaks you. Mm-hmm. And it was all, yeah, a game for him. It was. And that's just, I don't know. It made me... Made me despise him even more in this book, just from the way that he toyed with everyone's emotions. And, you know, then there was the old woman who was the shopkeeper as well, that he, she was like, okay, I'm good. Let's go. <laughs> you know, yeah. like some of them were pretty violent. Like when he took Beethoven's soul, it was a pretty violent extraction <laughs> versus the old lady at the shop. And she was like, all right, all right. peace out. <laughs> I, I don't know. I felt like he was a very complicated and it, it was a cat and mouse game for him. Like just when she thought they were more than employer and employee or contractor and contractee. That whole like everywhere and nowhere yes. time. When they were yeah. Like when in they would love or oh, whatever. I don't know that they were being, in love as much as nice. It was like a new, yes. new strategy, like different. which lasted like 80 years. 
And then he didn't talk to her for like 32 years or something. It was like he would come and go out of her life to, as it as it appeased him. And when you're talking about 300 years, that's a lot of cat and mouse that you can play. And nope. you can really jack with someone's emotions in 300 years. <laughs> so we get back to Henry and and Addie. And they have, they have a slew of experiences as well. And that they are trying, he is always trying, which I really thought kind of made me endear Henry, is that he was always trying to give her an experience she had never had before. Yeah. And when you have somebody who's lived 300 years, because at this point he knows her story because they've swapped soul-selling stories at this time. That's quite a tongue twister. So he knows she's 324 years old or at this point, and he still is looking for ways to give her experiences. And one of the experiences that I really liked was when she took the pictures, the Polaroids. Oh, yeah. That was the first time that she was ever... Not a blur. (laughs) Yeah. And it was only her feet. Yeah. But they existed. Like, that. it was proof that she was there. It was also the journals that they wrote when she realized that she could use his hand to guide the notes on the page and write the, her life story and everything that she had seen over 300 years through Henry. That was, I could understand how that emotional that made her. When she was, yeah, they go to that art exhibit together and that's when she realizes like, oh, I can move your finger in pain. Like mm-hmm. that and was something she couldn't do. And that was the first time she wrote her name. That was the first time that in 300 years that she had written her name somewhere. And they go home and she's like, all right, you ready with that pen over there? I'm going to start dictating. Ready? Yes. I mean, journal after journal after journal. But we realize that she doesn't have much time left with Henry. And a little clock he's got. Yeah. So we find out that the watch is actually a countdown clock of how many days he has left to live until Luke comes to take his soul. And Addie is just distraught by the whole thought of this and the whole, I don't know, the whole concept that she's going to lose Henry, who's the only person in her life that knows she existed and doesn't want him, who was in a dark place. He was in a very dark place when he made the deal with Luke, but he's in a much better place now. Right. But... The devil's not really good at releasing you from your contract. And so understanding that the end is coming and she's seen everything that Luke could do over the centuries, not years, centuries, (laughs) that when she gets mad at him for making the deal with Henry and for putting Henry in her path and giving her as the gift, the one thing that he does is he takes her away from Henry for eight days. and A week. It was supposed to be like a night. Yeah. Oh, was her was it her birthday? I know they went away for a reason. It was either her birthday or the anniversary of her um, contract, and it was supposed to be he wanted to take her away for one night. And she's like, "Fine, I'll let you have me for this night." And he takes her away for a week, and knowing that she only has a limited amount of time with Henry. And so again, it's just these ways that he like would toy with her emotions and toy with her soul and really try to break her spirit because that's when he wins. Mm-hmm. And so she comes up with a plan on the night that Henry's supposed to, to deliver his soul to Luke. She makes a deal and she says, you can okay, have me, 
You want me to be your wife? You want me to be your companion? You want me to be around as long as you want me around? Then that's fine. I'll do it. Uh, let me take Henry's place. You need a soul tonight? I'll, I'll give yours. you mine. As long as you want me by your side. As long as you want me by your side, I'll be there. And I don't know how. I don't know if it's a weak moment for Luke or what, but he agrees and doesn't like double cross her in any way. I don't know if that's like her final gift is that he knows she's going to long for Henry for the rest of her life. And so, or for the rest of Henry's life, because she's going to live forever. (laughs) But he gives her Henry as a gift. Like Henry gets to live and she does not. And that she becomes a spirit alongside of Luke. And I I don't know. I really like, I, I don't, it's, I don't know. It's hard for me to say if I like the ending of this or if I just understand the ending of this when he, when they're standing in the bookshop and she sees the entire covers of the books that just say the invisible life of Addie LaRue and there's no author's name on it. And again, they kind of thought this as like some sort of PR stent. Yes. And it really isn't. It's because Henry thought she needed to stand alone And so to know that this was her story and her life, and even though he may have penned it, it's all her. It's in print. Yes. People are reading it. Exactly. And it's very well received. And, you know, I think that Luke was then like, okay, you're you're the spitfire that I'm going to have to deal deal with. with. (laughs) And that was kind of why she said, as long as you want me by your side, I'll be there with you. Because she was going to do everything that she could to make him not Not want her by his side. And so, you know, Henry does get to live on. And his uh, friend, who's the artist, again, does all of these different drawings and paintings and does the the Polaroids. They're all of Addie LaRue. And you realize how many times she has influenced art throughout history because she had encountered all of these different artists and painters sculptors. and sculptors and yes. sketch artists. Yes. And so she has Musicians. influenced so much in her life just by existing. And even though no one remembers who she is, she still did leave a mark and she still did exist, even if we don't get to see it until Henry writes the book. But I have a couple of questions. Do you think she really loves Henry or does she just Love the fact that Henry knows who she is. My impression was that she liked the idea of Henry Mm -hmm. because that's like the whole point of Henry, right? I kind of thought he was a little bit one-dimensional. Like, I just want to be loved. and Mm -hmm. But they were both, you know, making these deals with their soul. Right. In a relationship, wannabe relationship, don't want to be in this relationship spot. Mm Mm-hmm. But was Henry really spectacular? You know, like he just remembered her. Right. And yeah, he was a nice guy, and did we, they did some nice things together. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I don't think so. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like she just loved the idea that someone remembered her, and it it could have been insert name here exactly. And as long as they it could have been a female, and she'd have been like, "All right, let's do let's this. do you it." Know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and as long as they weren't an absolutely monstrosity of a person. Exactly. Then I feel like she probably would have fallen in love, like, or been at least 
devoted to that person, especially because I feel like it made her feel like she had one on Luke. You know, like she had found a loophole when in reality, Luke had set the whole thing up. She keeps going. She's from Vion, France, and she continues throughout 300 years to go back to Vion. Why do you think, especially after, let's say, the first 100 years, no one that you knew, no one that was in your life is still alive in Vion? Why do you keep going back to Vion? Or why do you think Addie keeps going back to Vion? I mean, I think it's, I don't know, human nature. It's just go back home. Also, it's the 17 and 1800s. It's not like she can, like, fly to Australia and try a new life there, you know? Right, right. And then Luke drops her in some random places. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's home. And I feel like she does learn things. And she's, like, weirdly excited about the tree that grows in the graveyard. And then it's just gone the next time or whatever. And dies. And she blames him. And he's like, I'm not the only force (laughs) out here. You know, Mother Nature has her whole debacle over there. going, too. (laughs) I mean, the tree is 200 years old. It's going to fall down. Like, I didn't do that. And so... He may have been unfairly blamed for a few things, but I, I but I probably, feel like she was like learning new things for yeah. a while when she went back. Like she sure. learns that like her dad died like a year after she left. Mm-hmm. Going back to one thing that we'd mentioned earlier is talking about kind of this her influence in art throughout the years, and one thing that they talk about, or one thing I not one thing that they talk about necessarily, but one thing that is referenced often about her is these idea of like seven freckles or seven stars or so she is obviously from France. She's a redhead. She's fair complected. And she has apparently very distinguished constellation like combination of seven freckles on her face. Mm -hmm. And that's referenced several times throughout history in different art forms. And Henry has a friend who is in art school and getting writing a dissertation and she very haphazardly or serendipitously, I'm not sure, comes across this connection of these artists over the years. And while none of them are the same medium and none of them are obviously of her because she's a figment of their imagination, a muse in some instances, she makes the connection that these are all the same person or how how crazy would it be if this was the same person, like artists influencing artists centuries later. And Addie's sitting at the table like, do-do-do-do-do. Yeah, I was in Italy in the 19th century. and What if it's all me? 50 years later and... uh, it was at America. I think it was L.A. was uh-huh. the sculptor in the 60s. <laughs> it's like She could be like, hey, so I'm going to tell you a funny story, and then you're going to go to the bathroom, and you're not going to remember any of it. <laughs> and so there was this kind of going an influence of art. And, that's, again, they went to that art exhibit where she got to experience all the different sensories, and that was the first time that she wrote her name. And so there's definitely this whole kind of reoccurring theme of art, like even going to the opera with Luke and living in New Orleans and all the art that's present there. There was this kind of continuing theme of art and, you know, she did like the champagne. There's also, yeah, lots of champagne. I mean, yeah, if you're with Luke and you're like on the 84th floor of some bougie place drinking Dom Perignon, sure. Out the bottle. Oh, that was different. Oh, that was a different time. That's when she was like watching the sunset, just like drinking champagne out of the bottle. Yes. Because <laughs> she's classy. 
but one of the issues that that I that I struggled with with this book, and that's what I, the next question I want to ask you is: Do you like the way that this book was constructed? I don't think I like, but I read it and also listened to the audio okay. book, and I think it was easier in the book to be like, "Okay, we're back in the 1700s," and then mm-hmm. it's like, "Oh, we're back in New York," and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you like lose track of the story flow and where exactly we are and the countdown of Henry. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, what's happening today in New York City? Because right. like we just went in a deep dive into Italy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. What about you? Well, I mostly exclusively listen to audiobooks. And so this is a kind of a note that I have for those who construct audiobooks and craft the way that they are structured is – it was very hard for me. I literally would have to listen to like what outfit she was wearing because she would always talk about the, like yeah. the clothes and different things. Right. So I was like, is she wearing a bone corset with a Krenlin underneath and, you know, kind of antebellum or is she modern day? Um, is she walking into a cream colored couch in a modern apartment in New York <laughs> right. City? So for me, it was very hard because the titles in the chapters and the audiobook didn't tell me what year we were in, didn't give me any reference as far as what century we were even in. So that's my note. If you're an audio book designer out there, please help us out if it's spanning 300 years for those of us who are audiobook listeners and make the chapters a little more reflective of what year or century or something that we're in. But I was able to follow it, but it was a lot more difficult, especially because this is such a long book. That, again, spanning 300 years, and I feel like we took a long time to get to the actual story of Henry and Addie that, you know, we lost a lot in the process. At least I did, um, and I wanted to make sure – it's a long book to go back and reread. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would have to go back chapters and, like, each yes. chapter at the beginning and be like, okay, I need to find the last New York City because right. we went to two different countries in between there. Exactly. And maybe a couple of centuries difference in there. But it was tough. It was tough being a woman. I feel like there was Mm -hmm. a lot of that that really kind of spoke to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Freedom is a pair of trousers and a button coat. Oh, that was a good one. Because Luke was always like, oh, you can do whatever you want, except I'm a woman and it's 1720, you know? Right, and there's Um, a revolution going on. It's just, freedom is a pair of trousers and a button coat. If only she had known. The darkness claimed... He'd given her freedom, but really there is no such thing for a woman, a world where only men are given leave to roam. I think that we saw that even, you know, she thought she'd fallen in love with the one, um, the one guy, the, the one, one sailor. Guy. Yeah, well, and the sailor, <laughs> like the sailor guy, and they went to the boarding house together, and then he was like, oh, hey, yeah, um, who are you? <laughs> of course. And that's what she said, that there's usually only, like, two responses in the morning. There's either, like, deep shame or, like, hey, so about last night. (laughs) Um, A little foggy for me, but. Right, right. Remind me of your name. Or there was just, like, this immense amount of shame of, like, oh, my gosh, you need to go. Here's your pennies. Uh, Door's Uh right there. Exactly. I know that she kind of got used to that. I don't, I don't, well, that's not true. I don't think you get used to that, but I think she kind of accepted that that was her reality versus trying to combat it or versus trying to change that reality. And it worked out for her in some instances because that was how she survived and made money and worked through the centuries and <laughs> survived. 
Survival, man. She did steal a lot of food um, because she knew that people would forget her. Food and books? Food and books. I mean, she started out not being able to read, and then she ended up speaking like five languages. Right. She had a little bit of time to learn. (laughs) (laughs) There's downtime. All right. Final thoughts on this book? I loved it. Like I said, it was a little uh, jumping around, a little bit confusing, Mm -hmm. but yeah. All right. So, do we have something interesting to drink today, Keegan? Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, this is one of my favorite wineries. Uh, this is Vigna Tondonia or Lopez de Heredia. We're drinking the Vigna Bosconia 2009. Wonderful. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and Keegan's going to pour us a glass. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about the wine. Welcome back. Keegan, you have poured us another gorgeous red today. And so what uh, what are we drinking here? Tell us a little bit about this. We're drinking a wine from Rioja. This is probably one of the older wines we've drank. Okay. But I felt a big part of this book was related to art. Mm-hmm. Kind of went with like the wine and art theme and how winemakers are really artists mm-hmm. in their own way and Lopez de Heredia steeped in lots of tradition I mean they were established in 1877 so not quite as old as Addie but <laughs> I mean pretty close all things considered so the winemaker it's currently run by Maria Jose and she is amazing mm-hmm. and an awesome winemaker this wine smells delicious so I can't wait to try it Get in there. Um, So I just kind of wanted to talk about some similarities between wine and art. Okay. They both can be consumed. (laughs) Definitely. uh, But wine... In very different mediums. Yeah. Lots of different options. Uh uh, But wine is ultimately a food product. So while you can hold on to it forever, it's not going to be good and drinkable after 100 years or so. Um, They both allow you to have a sensory experience, be it smell, taste, feel, hear. Mm -hmm. She was, uh, Addie was influencing musicians Mm -hmm. to write music. Um, They both require a sort of creative process. Also, wine labels can be straight art. (laughs) Yes, Um, and we did a podcast on that, didn't we? uh, Go back to All Adults Here, which we talk about wine labels. And also many people write about wine in a poetic way. That's true, because we just did a podcast on shelf talkers and all of the descriptors that are used. Um, And wine can also be an inspiration for art. Mm -hmm. If you've ever met any artists, they're often under the influence. I was going to say, I feel like a lot of... A lot of wine is consumed while art is being crafted. Exactly. (laughs) At least in a lot of the traditional Italian, French, those sort of areas of art. Right. Um, But wine is also obviously a little different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if an artist is trying to create a painting Mm -hmm. or a sculpture and they don't like it, they can just like trash it. Start over. Start over. Mm -hmm. You don't really have that luxury yeah, when I feel Mother like nature does what she does. Wine is a little more committed. You're going to have to make something with what you have. Exactly. And you can manipulate it, but it's wine tends to be a lot better when you let it express itself for the most part. So I kind of wanted to reference some cool places to go see art. 
mm-hmm. art and wine. A lot of people are familiar with Ralph Steadman. Pretty incredible, best known for his collaborations with Hunter S. Thompson. They met at the Kentucky Derby oh. in 1970. Supposedly took them three days to find each other. Oh, wow. Together, they kind of developed gonzo journalism. So in 1987, Ralph Steadman was approached by Gordon Kerr at Odd Benz to travel vineyards and produce artwork. And so he did this from 1987 until 2000, and a lot of that art appeared in his books that he published later, uh, The Grapes of Wrath in 1996, Still Life with Bottle in 1997, which is whiskey-focused, mm. and Uddentrodden Grapes, uh, which came out in 2005. And I borrowed it from the library and just loved it and ended up buying it. So pretty pretty awesome stuff. So Ralph Steadman enjoyed meeting the workers Mm -hmm. and then the processes behind winemaking. And obviously, almost all the winemaking areas of the world are beautiful. So he would also be kind of entrenched by the beautiful scenery that he was surrounded by as well. There's another cool artist I read about, Amelia Face Harness. She grew up around the Finger Lakes in New York, and both of her parents are artists. But she uses wine to paint watercolor portraits. Hmm. So it's this process of wax resist dyeing to layer wine stains to create art. That's an interesting way to use Wine, wine stains. Right. So she's also That's obviously, what I'll say at my house now. We're just creating art yeah. here. This is art in this progress. This is artwork. Yes. I'm just drinking over a white piece of paper, but you right. know. Right. Um, art she prefers to work with French wine. Okay. <laughs> but obviously she's consuming it as well, but you know, <laughs> it can get pricey. Um, so she also used some Argentinian wines, um, but she preferred brick or red colors to the darker, more purple wines, Mm. which I think she said it was kind of difficult to go into a wine shop and be like, I'm looking for a wine that is brick in color. You know, like (laughs) I don't need it to be dry or off dry. Don't care. I need a brick colored wine. I I don't know that you can tell that from the bottle. Like, I feel like you would have to, that's kind of have to know about the grape trial and error. Yeah, exactly. Um, so lots of wineries have art collections, or entirely art-based spaces. So I'll just mention a couple that I thought was kind of interesting. There's a Museum of Wine Culture at Vivanco Winery in Spain. It's over 40,000 square feet with 6,000 pieces. Um, And it was curated to illustrate the history of wine. And there's uh, legendary artists featured in there, such as Pablo Picasso, Salvador Dali. So they also feature art that shows harvests and H&M foray and grape presses, Mm -hmm. which I thought was kind of cool. There's also the Hess Collection Winery in Mount Veter in Napa. It contains more than a thousand pieces of contemporary art from over 65 international artists, and it was all procured by the founder, Donald Hess. Hmm. So there's a lot of winemakers that also have this affinity for art. I, I feel like wine and art go hand in hand in a lot of ways because... All, like often literally, right? When, or yes. when you go to an art showing, yes. they almost always are... Offering you wine. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. There was also a, a pretty interesting, I thought it was a study with classical music and champagne. Okay. So this was done by a master of wine, Susan Lynn. The champagne she used was Veuve Clicquot. And they found that higher toned music resulted in a perception of higher acidity in the wine. 
Really? I just thought that was very interesting. People were, people seemed to be concerned that their music preference would influence the wine. Mm -hmm. But in the control group, the wine wasn't enjoyed as much. Really? Even if it was different styles of classical music, they were all enjoyed more than with no music at all. And people kind of thought it might be distracting, but perhaps so, music does enhance our... I was going to say, so we need to have music in the background whenever we consume wine. It will make us enjoy it more. And some people are really good at pairing wine with music? musicians. Really? Yeah. That sounds like a very interesting topic. Right. So we should listen to music while looking at art and consuming wine. Sounds super fancy, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a Saturday night. <laughs> sounds like a good Saturday night to me. Um, so winemakers, their job is to ensure the quality of the grape makes it into the final result. That is wine. Mm -hmm. So as we have winemakers as artists, mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to talk about Mrs. Maria Jose. Okay. That is currently running Lopez de Oredia. So that's the winemaker of the wine that we're drinking, correct? Correct. Okay, good. So we're drinking a 2009 Vina Bosconia from Lopez de Oredia. Uh, a lot of people refer to the winery just as Vina Tondonia. Mm -hmm. A little confusing because they also have a wine called Vina Tondonia mm. and a vineyard that it references of Tondonia. Okay. They represent Old Rioja. They're very traditional, lots of history, uh, but it is a family business. So it's run by Maria, Jose, her siblings, and her husband. Kind of has a cult following. Mm -hmm. uh, the Grand Reservas are pretty rare. And before they bottle any Grand Reserva, three family members decide if the wine is good enough to be a Grand Reserva and if it's aged well enough. That's a lot of pressure for three people. Three people minimum, maybe. I know. I'm, <laughs> do they change? Like, I don't know. Is somebody sick that day? Uh, it's a lot of work. Oh, not enough. Not enough. Um, the importer is Think Global Wines. Uh, this is in Rioja, in Rioja Alta. And Rioja kind of got on the map in the wine world for supplying grapes to Bordeaux when phylloxera hit there in the 1860s. Mm. And so this brought a lot of new technology into Rioja, like the use of oak and the importance of terroir. So Spanish grapes went to Bordeaux mm -hmm. in France mm -hmm. whenever they had issues growing the grapes in Bordeaux. Exactly. Okay. A little fluff, you know? Well, I'm just trying to think because I know Bordeaux is like one of the most strict as far as rules and regulations and all this and the fact that these didn't even come from the same country like I just well the laws were changed but they hadn't changed at that point okay um so Rioja used to make like Rioja and Sauterne and Rioja mm -hmm. Bordeaux okay uh, but the laws were changed in 1954 and so then you couldn't do that anymore <laughs> um, so this producer they had a Rioja Grave, and they changed the name to become Gravonia. So mm. that's their white wine. Okay. Um, but yeah, so this magical period in Rioja where everybody was doing very well lasted almost four decades until Phylloxera hit Rioja mm. in 1901. And it was also found in the Tondonia Vineyard. So the industry declined mm -hmm. and didn't really recover until the 60s and 70s when demand for wine increased internationally. And another common thing in older days was if you weren't near water, then your wine wasn't being shipped out. Mm -hmm. So the 
construction of railways also significantly helped Rioja. So in our glass is a blend, very traditional, as I said before, blend, 80% Tempranillo, 15% Garnacho, 3% Graciano, and 2% Masuelo. So Lopez de Heredia make red, white, and rosado. The rosado is also pretty rare. It's an oxidative style, so it's pretty unique, and it wasn't selling well. So for a while, they cut back production, Mm -hmm. and then some lovely restaurant people figured it out (laughs) and really liked it, Mm -hmm. and so they've actually increased production again. This wine, Vigna Bosconia, comes from the El Bosque Vineyard, which is 37 acres, and the name Bosconia comes from a Burgundy-style wine that the founder, Don Rafael Lopez de Heredia y Landeta, uh, used to make that he called Rioja Sepa Borgonia, which mm-hmm. obviously sounds a lot like Burgundy or Borgonia. Right. I was thinking the same thing. So just a little bit of history. This was one of the first three houses in Rioja. Founded in 1877, Don Rafael fell in love with Rioja, especially the area around Otto. And so a lot of the vineyard is right around the Erbo River. And... He had really good connections with negotiants from Bordeaux, and that's how he learned about picking top quality sites, which mm-hmm. they're terroir. Yes. He got advice from some of the best producers to this day, including Chateau de Cam, Aubryon, and Chateau Margaux. He also started a project he never finished. He wanted his own chateau. Mm. And so he began designing and constructing this big vision of his, uh, but the estate is over 53,000 square meters, including almost 20,000 square meters of buildings. Um, he founded Vigna Tondonia in 1913, which is now over 100 hectares, which wow. is right under 250 acres. Uh, it is their most important vineyard, like their flagship wine, mm-hmm. obviously very high quality. It's stylistically brighter and more modern in style than what we're drinking today, which is the Bosconia. They also own other vineyards. Cubias Vineyard makes Viña Cubillo. It's the youngest one. It's technically a crianza. It's a fresher style. As we said, this is the Viña Bosconia from El Bosque. It's a little bit more dense, a little bit more structure, and because the vineyard is smaller, it's a little bit more rare. Um, And they have what... I. I thought it was pretty cool. They have a few bottles of their first Reserva from 1890 that's in their family wine museum. That's kind of amazing. Rich in culture and history. Well, let's let's try this. Let's have a little uh, sippy sip of what's in the glass. Oh, my God, this nose. What's the first thing you think of? This is like the PG version this is like making sweet, sweet love. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like sugar and spice and everything nice. It's red fruit and dusty <laughs> leather. And I can just like see like fresh, damp soil outside. And, and some chocolate. Should we throw some chocolate in there as we well? Definitely throw chocolate in there. <laughs> um, chocolate makes everything better. Also some vanilla and uh, dill. Okay. I I smell the dill for sure. Um, So they're pretty unique in another way that they own a bunch of large vats. Uh, Their smallest one is 60 hectoliters, 
and the largest is 640. Some of them are 140 years old. Oh, wow. They're so big, they have to be constructed and maintained on site. So this is one of the few wineries in the world that actually have their own cooperage. Mm. So they own 14,000 handmade American oak barrels. Wow. Um, But they go straight to the source. They Mm -hmm. buy some of their wood from the Appalachian Mountains. Okay. So this is- So we're in Spain buying wood from the east coast of North America. Right. So when they started, it's pretty traditional in Rioja to use American oak instead of French oak because it's cheaper. Okay. Even coming across an ocean. Yes. <laughs> that says a lot since France shares a border with Spain. Too far away. <laughs> French demand too high of a price. So this wine is aged five years in a large American oak and then an additional four plus years in bottle before release. Wow. So obviously they have a pretty incredible cellar. I would imagine. And they are proud of their cobwebs. Okay. (laughs) Um, It is ready to consume when released. Because they took care of all the aging before they release it. Right. So this is a phenomenal chance, I feel like, for people that... Because you're not going to see most wines 2009. Mm -hmm. This is 12 years old on the shelf. So it's a really good opportunity to try a developed wine. Mm -hmm. But these wines will also last for a really long time. They have a lot of structure and therefore ageability. So on the palate. So I have to admit this first sip that I took was a very overpowering for me. Like it, I definitely did not love this wine on the first sip. However, on the second sip, I think that it settled down. Like the first sip was just a full frontal assault <laughs> yeah. on my mouth. It's pretty elevated acidity. I think the tannins are pretty well integrated. Like my mouth isn't necessarily super dry, mm-hmm. but that acid is very present. So, I mean, like it was an uncontrolled facial expression <laughs> that happened on the first sip. But the second sip was very different. So that's why, again, never judge a wine by its first sip. Exactly. Is that fair? uh, Absolutely. And a good wine will continue to evolve in the glass. Yes. And we did decant this wine. Okay. Yes, we did. And how long did we decant it for? A couple hours, right? (laughs) Several hours. It was number one on my priority this morning was to wake up and decant this wine for us to drink. And if, if we had the strength to save a little bit in the bottle until tomorrow, it might even be better. I, I feel like that's a challenge we should accept. I don't think that's going to happen, <laughs> but we can dream. And this, But I agree with you that this wine, I feel like the very first sip, I was like, ooh, I am not sure, but I'm several sips in at this point and perhaps a glass refill. And I'm very much enjoying this wine. I I love it. Um, There is uh, fruit here as well, but Mm -hmm. like dusty leather and Mm -hmm. dill and And wet soil and chocolate. Definitely some wet soil. Definitely imagine myself laying in some damp soil outside, sipping this wine. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's probably a, a very starry sky involved when we're sipping this wine. Yeah, I like that tie-in. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it's another food, foodie wine. Of course. We like the food around here. There, I think it's craving meat, roasted meat, cured meat, something. Like a charcuterie or? Charcuterie would work. Yeah, especially with uh, given the complexity of this, if you had some great cheeses and some meats with some unique um, nuts and chocolates, there's a whole lot of flavor that you could pick up from the charcuterie inside of this wine. You could do this wine with like a roast beef sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> or like a French dip with some au jus. Like, I think that would be okay, great. Okay, a French dip with au jus and this wine. You haven't mentioned the price point of this wine. This is around $45 on the shelf. Like once so I said, this, this is, is definitely, yeah. So the au jus sandwich and the wine. Yeah, you know, $5.99, $50. I love You're it. definitely spending more on the wine than the dinner in this scenario, correct? Exactly. But sometimes it works. Otherwise, you know, I, I don't know if this wine I would necessarily want with, like, a steak. So you're kind of saying that the wine is Addie LaRue and that what we pair it with, our five ninety nine sandwich, could, could be, be Henry. <laughs> yes. And if it was Luke, then, yeah, we're having a... <laughs> we're having charcuterie because there's a lot of complexity there. there and there's go. a lot of different flavors. I but. Like if we're doing the high-low, then the wine is definitely more of our Addie LaRue uh, character. And uh, bless his little heart, Henry, he's our stable, consistent sandwich. I just want to be loved. I just want to be enough. He doesn't want to be loved. He just wants to be enough. And I think a French dip with au jus would be just enough for this incredible wine. I like it. I like it. Thank you uh, for giving us this great wine, and we had a phenomenal book that we paired it with. And so we want to invite you to go to readingbetweenthewines.blog to learn more about all of the amazing art installations and different places to view art that Keegan had talked about, as well as the wine and also the book that we discussed. And then uh, thank you so much to our amazing audio engineer, Colin Caston, our executive producer, Stacey Grow, and our social media coordinator, JM Social Solutions. Uh, the three of you really make uh, what we do more prevalent. In society, And so for that, we thank you. To our Patreon subscribers, we cannot do our podcast without you. Uh, you keep us in wine and books. And for that, reading between the wines is eternally grateful. So until the next time that Keegan and I get the honor of having your ear, always keep your glass half full. Cheers! Cheers.